Let's open our Bibles this morning to Mark chapter 3, where Paul read for us earlier. Bear with me, I'm in the backside of a cold, and that's the good news. Mark chapter 3, verses 22 to 30. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem said, He has Belzebub. By the ruler of the demons he casts out demons. So he called them to him and said to them in parables, Well, how can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house cannot stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but has an end. For no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man, and then he will plunder his house. Assuredly, I say to you, all sins will be forgiven, the sons of men, and whenever blasphemies they may have uttered. But he who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is subject to eternal condemnation, because they said he has an unclean spirit. As I looked at the first five chapters of Mark, what struck me is how many times Mark, it's really, and I've got no quotations here, it's really Peter's gospel. Mark is writing it, but it was given to him, handed down by Peter, that he mentions either Satan or demons over and over again within his gospel. Now, I want to give you an example of it so you can get a feel of where we're going this morning. And primarily, it's what was part of the prayer where we're told not to be ignorant of Satan's devices. Some, some of us here this morning are watching live stream don't even realize that you're in a war, an invisible war that um, goes on daily. Basically, we have um, three opponents, the world, the flesh, and the devil. That's a good place for an amen right there. That's what we're up against. Uh, the message this morning is to... Um, show just how much the scriptures, especially Mark, deals with the subject of spiritual warfare and even here accusing the Lord himself for who had just cast out a demon. The religious leaders are saying, well, he can only do it because he's, he himself is possessed by Beelzebub. So let's go back to chapter one and I'm just gonna walk through the first uh, five chapters and quickly point out how many times it actually, uh, Mark makes it an issue. Chapter 1, verses 12 and 13. And remember, the reoccurring word in Mark's gospel is and, and immediately. So verse 12, and immediately the Spirit drove Jesus into the wilderness. And there in the wilderness, 40 days tempted by Satan and was with wild beasts and the angels ministered to him. So we have demonic realm, demons, along with uh, the angels that didn't rebel, ministering to the Lord, uh, the, those 40 days and 40 nights. If you go to verse 21 through 28 in the same chapter, then they went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and he began to teach, and they were astonished at his teaching. 
for he taught them as one having authority and not as the scribes. Now there was a man in the synagogue with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, Let us alone. Notice it's plural, let us alone. What have we to do with you, Jesus of Nazareth? Did you come to destroy us? I know who you are. You're the Holy One of God. Now, in verse, let's go down to 28. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be quiet and come out of him. And when the unclean spirit had convulsed him and cried out with a loud voice, he came out of him. And they were all amazed, so that they questioned among themselves, saying, What is this? What new doctrine is this? For with authority he commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. And immediately his fame spread throughout all the region around Galilee. Look at verse 39, chapter 1. And he was preaching in their synagogues throughout all of Galilee, and casting out demons. Turn over to chapter 3, verse 11. We read, And the unclean spirits, whenever they saw him, fell down before him and cried out, saying, You are the Son of God. But he sternly warned them that they should not make him known. In verse 15, We read, and to have power to heal sickness and to cast out demons. This would would have been given to the disciples. And uh, with their callings, they're named in verses 17 through 19. But with their ministry, the Lord empowered his powers upon them uh, to cast out demons. Uh, Verses uh, thirty. We're looking at um, verses 22 and 26, same chapter. Uh, This is going to be our text, which we just read, so I won't read that one again. We'll come back to that and actually close this morning's study with the the what is the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. As we look at chapter 4, verses 13 and 15, And he said to them, do you not understand this parable? How then will you understand all the parables? He said, the sower sowed the word. And these are the ones by the wayside where the word is sown. And immediately comes Satan and immediately takes the word out of their hearts lest they should um, believe. So we find here in verse 13, we're going to camp on this one just a little bit, and uh, one of the points that we've been making with uh, going through the Bible, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John give us a complete picture. So we don't have a complete picture of the parable of the sower here, but we are told that Satan here is the one, when the seed is sown, that um, he comes and immediately tries to undo what was just been given to him. Now to have a deeper understanding of this, let's go back to Matthew chapter 13, where we have the full parable. Remember, Mark sort of condenses things. Uh, Matthew here gives us a little bit more. He not only gives us a complete parable, 
But then he's going to give an explanation of the parable. Now, we're talking about a sower going out. We don't sow too much these days. I take that back. I was sowing some grass seed uh, the old-fashioned way just this week, pitching it around like this. And basically, that's what the parable is. The Lord says, Behold, a sower went out to sow, verse 3 of 13, and he sowed some seed by the wayside, and the birds came and devoured them. Um, He's going to go on and talk about three different types of ground. And um, the bottom line is the word of God that's being sown, and it's going to fall on four different kinds of hearts. Right now, the word of God is being sown both here, live stream, and um, it falls on different people's hearts and it's received actually in different ways. Um, We read here in verses 18 and 19 when Jesus explains the parable, the disciples wanted to know what this was. So he says in verse 18, therefore hear the parable of the sower. Now he's going to explain it. When anyone hears the word of God and does not understand it, then the wicked one comes. Well, Mark clearly said the wicked one was Satan and snatches away what was sown in his heart. Now, you've you've talked to people. You've you've shared the gospel with them. Um, They've heard it. They're pondering it. And this can manifest itself in a whole bunch of different ways. Um, and how the enemy actually works. But what the result is, obviously, is that he effectively takes the word out of that person's heart, and as a result, they're not saved. Now, it could be um, a husband gets saved and goes home and says, Honey, I just gave my life to Jesus Christ today. My life is forever changed. And she looks at you and says, if you become one of those holy rulers, I want you to know I'm out of here. And an ultimatum is given, and choices have to be made. And sometimes people stand their ground, and sometimes they don't. I could use a lot of illustrations. It could be um, the guys that you work with, hear that you became a Christian, and they start putting the pressure on and calling you a holy roller, and now you're one of those people, you think you're better than us, so on and so forth. And um, it can take different forms, but the force behind it is what we're being told here is the devil himself. What I want to point out is that in verse 4, it says he calls the bird here Satan. Now hold on to that because this is going to tie, tie into, let's go back to Mark. There is a big theological term we call expositional constancy. And when it comes to teaching the parables, if a bird in Luke chapter 13 is um, a reference to Satan, if you look at the parable of the mustard seed, it's verses 31 and 32 of the same chapter, it talks about the church. It says, the kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed which a man took and sowed in his field And indeed is least of the seeds, but when it is grown, it is greater than the herbs and becomes a tree, so that the birds of the air come and nest in the branches. So he's likening 
um, the growth, I believe in this case, of the kingdom of heaven. A mustard seed, you know, it's really little. A little thing and you plant it. But mustard seeds do not grow into big trees that birds can nest in. So basically what the Lord is saying is something unnatural is taking place here. What we've seen in the church today, um, it's been making a lot of news all across the country, uh, a certain pattern is beginning to emerge in some of the mega churches. And that is um, they're falling, um, either to financial or sexual improprieties. The biggest church in the state of Wisconsin just this last couple of weeks, pastor had to step down and sending ripples all over. It's on the front page all over the country. It's a mega church. And um, we've seen it happen with, with Willow Creek. And um, my point is, first of all, I don't think there were many mega churches in, in, uh, in the first century. Um, the average Calvary Chapel is somewhere between 75 and 150 people. Yes, we do have some mega churches, but they're usually in very, very large cities, and it's, it's really the exception rather than the rule. So what we have here in this parable is something, a mustard seed that grew into a tree. Well, that's unnatural. But then it says the birds of the air came and nested in its branches. Now, expositional constancy is the interpretation. We don't know what the bird is here, but if it's, a, if it's Satan in uh, Matthew 13 and also in Mark, then expositional constancy says, says that that's the same thing in the church. So basically we're saying that um, the devil has made inroads even into the church and it's something that's very unnatural. This morning we will look at the only sin that will never be forgiven in this life or the life to come. And we're also going to look at the invisible war that exists in the here and now. We're going to take a look at our adversary, the devil, and also his demons. Um, first, let's look at Satan. A lot of people roll their eyes when you talk about their, them being a devil and uh, their perception of the devil and, you know, it's grueling and ugly and snarly and, you know, the red fork, pitchfork and the whole nine yards. To the contrary, he was the most beautiful creature that God ever created. And he was full of wisdom. So he's even got our perception of him turned around. This morning I'd like to begin um, looking at his beginning but also conclude with his fate so let's turn to the book of Ezekiel, for starters. Ezekiel chapter 28. Give you a moment to get there. Ezekiel 28. Drawing your attention, we'll pick it up in verse 12. The chapter actually uh, begins talking about the fall of the prince of Tyre. If you go to verse 1, and he's called the prince of Tyre. And again, I want to point out that as we teach through the Bible, chapter by chapter, verse by verse, that in one chapter, you can have a complete change of thought and subject. It'll completely switch gears. So the first half of Ezekiel 28 is really dealing with the real 
prince who was a prince of Tyre. But when we get to verse 12, he tells Ezekiel, son of man, take up a lamentation for the king of Tyre. So he just switched from prince to king, and you should take notice of that, because now we're not talking about a man anymore. Now we're actually talking about Lucifer. And actually what he looked like um, before, uh, before the fall of Adam and Eve. Thus says the Lord, you are the seal of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. Man, can you imagine that? Uh, something perfect in beauty. Um, after hearing Randy's song about his face, I'm sure that the, Randy is not perfect in beauty. <laughs> well, somebody please laugh or I'm in trouble with Randy. <laughs> you were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering. The sardex, the tobaz, the diamond, the barrel, the oxen, the jasper, sapphire, turquoise, emerald, and gold. The workmanship of your timbles or pipes. He was what we would call the worship leader in heaven. Was prepared for you on the day you were created. The first thing I want to point out is that uh, Lucifer is a created being. Unlike in Mormonism where they liken Jesus and the devil as brothers. We'll come to them a little bit later. You were, past tense, the anointed cherub who covers. I established you. You were on the holy mountain of God. You walked back and forth in the midst of the fiery stones. Well, this creates more questions than it gives us answers. My mind races when I read it. You were perfect in your ways from the day you were created. Again, I want to emphasize, angels are created beings. And then we have this big little word, until. Until iniquity was found in you. By the abundance of your trading, well, that's interesting. I wonder what that's all about. You became filled with violence within, and you sinned, and therefore I cast you as a profane thing out of the mountain of God. And I destroyed you, O covering cherub, from the midst of the fiery stones. Ezekiel gives us his origin. Um, Isaiah gives us the reason for his fall. For that, you need to turn to the book of Isaiah, and we're looking at chapter 14. And while you're turning, let me just tell you who his creator was. In Colossians, if you're taking notes, you can jot this one down. Colossians 1, verse 15, 16, and 17. Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation, for by him all things were created that are in heaven, that are on the earth, whether they're visible or invisible, whether they're thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things consist. Yes, he was created, but he was created by the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, if you've found Isaiah chapter 14, we actually find the reason for his fall. And in verse 12, it asks a question. How are you fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning? And how are you cut down to the ground, you who weaken the nations? For you said in your heart, 
I will ascend into heaven. As the cherub that was the covering over the Lord himself, he had a position, and in his position, every other created angel was under him as far as his position was concerned. Only the Trinity had a higher place in heaven than Lucifer. And somewhere in his heart and mind, he said in his heart, I want that position. I will ascend into the heavens. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will also sit on the mount of the congregation. On the farther sides of the north, I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the most high. Yet you shall be brought down to Sheol, the lowest part of the pit. And those who will gaze at you and consider you, saying, Is this the one who made the earth tremble? Who shook kingdoms, who made the world a wilderness and destroyed its cities? who did not open the house of his prisoner. Um, we don't know a whole lot more about him, but here in both Ezekiel and also in Isaiah, we find his creation and the reason for his fall. So what's his goal now that he's been cast down? Well, his... Um, uh, method of operation as MO hasn't changed at all over the years. His tactics are very much the same ones that they were in the Garden of Eden. But his goal, John tells us, the thief does not come except, number one, to steal, to kill, and to destroy. Jesus said, I have come that you might have life and that they may have it more abundantly. Quickly turn to Job, and we'll give an illustration of stealing, killing, and destroying. First time I started reading the Bible, I thought, there's a book in the Bible called Job. Why would they have a book in the Bible called Job? (laughs) Job chapter 1, interesting verse, where it talks about in verse 6, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord. And, to, and Satan also came among them. The Hebrew there translation is simply the angels, not the sons of God, but the angels. And the Lord said to Satan, where have you come from? And Satan answered the Lord and said, well, I've been going to and fro, back and forth on the earth. And the Lord said to Satan, well, have you considered my servant Job? There's none like him on the earth. He's blameless, upright man. One who fears God, he shuns evil. So Satan answered the Lord and said, does Job fear God for nothing? You've made this hedge around him, around his household, around all that he has on every side. You've blessed the works of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land. But now, stretch out your hand and touch all that he has and he will surely curse you to your face. So this would have been a test God is sovereign. Lucifer really can't do anything apart from God's sovereignty, but he allows this test to take place. And it's going to be very, um, very, very powerful demonstration of Satan's power once it's unleashed. 
Let me just interject here. There is going to come a time, I hope sooner rather than later, when the Lord comes for us at the rapture. I hope it happens sooner rather than later. Good place for an amen. (laughs) No more colds, no more mosquitoes. (laughs) And, but his time is coming when the Lord's going to pull off the restraints. And he's going to allow the man of sin to be revealed. And he will, two people in the Bible that we know for sure were possessed by Lucifer. One was Judas Iscariot, and the other will be the Antichrist. Here, the Lord is allowing this test to take place. He asks the question, why would the Lord allow a man to suffer so much, so heartbreaking? Because this book is in the word of God. And it's become a favorite book to many who have gone through very difficult periods of time, and they can identify, they can relate to. That's the reason Jesus had to be tested and tempted in every way as a man, so that he could identify with our human frailties. The only difference between us and him is the Lord passed every one of the tests. Another good place for an amen. So the Lord said to Satan, behold, all that he has is in your power, but here's the guidelines. Only do not lay your hand on his person. Then Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. Now what I'm going to read next happened all in one day. This wasn't over an extended period of time. Now there was a day when his sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. And a messenger came to Job and said, The oxen were plowing and the donkeys feeding beside them when the Sabians raided them and took them away. Well... The thief doesn't come except to steal. Then it says, Indeed, they have killed the servants with the edge of the sword, and I am alone escaped to tell you. Then it says, And to kill. And while he was speaking, another came and said, The fire of God fell down from heaven and came upon the sheep and the servants and consumed them. I am alone and left to tell you. And while he was still speaking, another who came in, the Chaldeans formed a band, raided the camels, took them away, killed the servants with the edge of the sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you. I mean, this is bam, 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 one right after the other, this news. And while he was speaking, also another came and said, your sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. And suddenly a great wind came, from across the wilderness and struck the four corners of the house and it fell on the young men and they're all dead. Seven sons, three daughters. I alone am escaped to tell you. Well, Satan's taunt was, okay, let me steal, kill, and destroy. And you'll see that Job only does these things because you blessed him so much. Then Job arose and tore his robe, shaved his head, and fell on the ground and worshipped. Wow. And here's, here's, a, here's an attitude, if you can understand um, Job here and what he says next. Uh, this is about as real as it gets, gang. Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I'm going to return. The Lord gave, the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. What do you have that the Lord hasn't given you? Well, what if he decides to take it away? What's your attitude going to be? Well, here's the example. Naked I came, naked I go. Praise the Lord. 
as long as the Lord is still on the throne and I'm going to heaven, my name's in the book. That's all that really matters. <laughs> amen, amen. Okay, so here is our example. Um, the origin of the demons, um, I'll just quote from Revelation 12. It gives us really the history of the whole story of, of uh, the nation of Israel, Jesus, and Lucifer. And when it describes Lucifer in, in Revelation 12, it says a third of the stars fell with him. Jesus said, I saw Satan fall from heaven like lightning. So how he did it, we don't know. But he persuaded one-third and I don't know how many angels there are. Revelation 4 says there's 10,000s times 10,000s times 10,000s times 10,000s. There's millions and billions of angels. And one-third of them fell, and they became disembodied spirits seeking to possess who they can. Their fate, and that's what we're reading in Mark. What have we read in Mark? How many times did Jesus... Cast demons out of people. It was a, a big part of the first uh, five uh, chapters of, 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 uh, of Mark's gospel. Matthew 25 says uh, that he will also say to those on his left hand, depart from you cursed into the everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels. So the reason that there was a hell that was created was to deal eternally with these people. In the meantime, we're in the here and now, and we're in this invisible war that goes on day in and day out. Sometimes we're aware of it, and other times we're not aware of it. I I personally think we had spiritual warfare this last Wednesday. I was down with a cold, and Mary calls and said, there's no power in the church. There's lights in the office, that works, but Video room isn't working. We couldn't live stream anything. Most of the lights are out. What do we do? And I said, what do you think? She says, well, I think we should probably call the teachers and just put emails out. And, and um, if, we don't, if we can't have any power, why, why do you do it? I said, okay, I'm not feeling good anyway, so let's just do that. Well, two hours later, I get a phone call. After she had called <laughs> everybody and, and canceled the the Sunday school and everything that was, that was going on, transformer across the street went on. And they got it back on. So she calls me back up again. But now it's late in the afternoon. She says, what do you think? I says, no, it's just too late to call everybody back and let, let known what's, what's going on. Eh, probably just a coincidence. And then on the other hand, if he has the authority to do these things, why can't he blow out a transformer so that the word of God doesn't go out on a Wednesday evening, huh? And I don't know. I'm not saying that's what it is. I'm saying that the possibility is there. I think he's doing everything in his power today to dumb down the word of God, to get people in the programs and, and activities rather than, like Mary, sitting at Jesus' feet, which Jesus says is a better place. Oh, Lord, Martha said, my sister isn't helping me. Boo-hoo, uh-huh. Tell her to help me. Can't you see sisters doing that? I can. <laughs> and uh, the Lord says, no, actually, Mary has chosen the better part. What's the better part? 
to sit at the Lord's feet, give him your time, open your mind, open your heart, and let the word come in, because faith comes by hearing, and hearing comes by the word of God. It doesn't come with the flash and, and all the hype that goes along with it. It's by sitting carefully and choosing that better part. Now, um, there are some demons. Now, let's turn to Revelation chapter 9. There are some demons, obviously, that are roaming free today. And in Revelation 9, um, I will show and talk a little bit about the ones that are incarcerated. But in Revelation chapter 9, verses 1 through 11, we have this pit being opened. And I'm just going to read the scriptures and let them speak for themselves. The fifth angel sounded, and I saw a star falling from heaven to the earth. And to him was given the key to the bottomless pit. And he opened the bottomless pit, and smoke arose out of the pit like the smoke of a great furnace. And the sun and the air were darkened because of the smoke of the pit. Then out of the smoke came locusts upon the earth, and to them was given power as the scorpions of the earth have power. This place, I'm going to show you in just a minute, is called the abyss. They were commanded not to harm the grass or the earth or green things or any other tree, but only those men who have the seal do not have the seal of God on their forehead. And they were not given authority to kill them, but to torment them for five months. And their torment was like the torment of a scorpion which strikes a man. In those days, men will seek death and will not find it. They will desire to die, and death will flee from them. And the shape of the locust was like horses prepared for battle. And on their heads were crowns of something like gold, and their faces were like the faces of men. They had hair like women's hair, and their teeth were like lion's teeth. And they had breastplates like the breastplates of iron, and the sounds of their wings was like the sounds of chariots with many horses running into battle. They had tails like scorpions, and their sting was in their tail. And their power was to hurt men for five months. Now this is during the tribulation period, where evidently this pit where the incarcerated demons are, evidently there's some that are so fierce uh, they, they won't be released until this period of time. Remember we read earlier, powers and principalities. In other words, there's different rankings of authority and power when it comes to the angelic realm. Remember Daniel chapter 10. And Daniel's prayer was being held up by the, um, the demon of the prince of Persia. And it wasn't until Michael the archangel, one with more authority than him, actually got Daniel's prayer request delivered to Daniel. So when we talk about an invisible war, it's really throughout the scriptures. Even happened here this morning. Some of you are thinking, nah, it's rainy, cold outside. I don't think I'll go to church this morning. And then the Holy Spirit smacks you across the side of the head and said, get out of bed and get going. <laughs> He'd love to have you sleep in rather than sit in. And they had a king over them, these demons. Now in the Proverbs, it says, a locust have no king. Isn't that interesting? Why would the Proverbs tell us that the locusts have no king? 
They're wind-driven. Where the wind goes, the locusts go. Not these guys. That's because they're not locusts. They're demons. And they had a king over them, the angel of the bottomless pit, whose name in the Hebrew is Abaddon, but Greek, is the name is Apollyon. And so when it gets into the names, I, I said, Bear, just type me up a list of, of some of the names. So bear with me. He has many names in the scriptures. Here's two. Abaddon, Apollyon, king of the bottomless pit, the accuser, the lawless one, adversary, serpent, a roaring lion, angel of light, the god of this world, the anointed cherub that covers, angel of the bottomless pit, Lucifer, antichrist, murderer, beast, prince of the power of the air, Belzebub, ruler of this world, deceiver, servant of old, the devil, son of perdition, dragon, falling star, evil one, thief, the father of lies, and the wicked one. And I'm sure there's probably some that we actually missed. In his book, <coughs> excuse me, called Studies in Revelation, it's an old book written by old school Assembly of God pastor called Frank M. Boyd. Commenting on these passages, he says the expression bottomless pit um, is not an accurate translation of the original here except as a figurative expression of the idea of a very, very deep dungeon hole. The well pit or the abyss is a better rendering and refers to a deep dungeon-like place of confinement in the underworld, uh, the region of death, the place of departed spirits, which are confined to fallen angels and demons. And then he quotes Luke 6, we'll go there later, Luke 8, we're going there right now, Second Peter 2 and Revelation 9. Let's go to Luke chapter 8 which my Bible just flipped open to, thank you, and look at verse 26, Luke chapter 8. It says, And they sailed to the country of the Gadarenes, which is opposite Galilee. And when he stepped out on the land, there met him a certain man from the city who had demons, plural, for a long time. And he wore no clothes, nor did he live in a house, but in the tombs. And when he saw Jesus, he cried out, and he fell down before him with a loud voice and said, What have I to do with you, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I beg you, do not torment me. For he had commanded the unclean spirits to come out of the man, for it had often seized him, and he was kept under guard, bound with chains and shackles, and he would break the bonds and was driven by the demon into the wilderness. So here we have an ordinary human being with supernatural strength because of demon possession. And Jesus said, what is your name? And he said, Legion, because many demons had entered him. And they begged him that he would not command them to go into the abyss. Now, Revelation 9, we have the abyss being opened during the tribulation. Evidently, this place is a place that demons evidently want no part of. 
And yet, that was their plea. Don't send us to the abyss. Now, a herd of many swine were feeding there on the mountain, and they begged him that he would permit them to enter them, and he permitted them. And then the demons went out of the man and entered the swine, and the herd ran violently down the steep place into the lake and were drowned. And when those who fled saw what had happened, they fled and told it into the city. It freaked out everybody that was there. Everybody knew this man. And when they came out, they found a guy dressed and in his right mind. And so we have these examples. Um, This tells me that there are demons on earth seeking bodies to possess. And some are already incarcerated in the abyss. Um, We were just in Revelation. The book right before Revelation is the book of Jude. And it's only one chapter long, but it refers to um, the devil and it also refers to demons. So I'd like us to just turn there quickly before we go on. We've established thus far Can't read the Gospel of Mark without dealing with casting out demons. They are eternal beings, which means um, they're still around today. All right, Jude 6. Only one chapter long. And the angels who did not keep their proper domain, but left their own habitation, he has reserved in everlasting chains under darkness for the judgment of that great day. It could mean two things. The Bible says someday you're going to judge angels. Wow, what a mind blower that is. Someday you're going to judge angels. Well, it could mean, number one, that they're going to be released in the day of judgment, which would be the great tribulation. We just read that in Revelation 9. Or it could be that they won't be released at all until they're cast into the lake of fire, one of, one of the two. But here it refers to them. But then you read verse 9, and it talks about authority. And um, speaking evil of dignitaries, verse 8, but then it says, Yet Michael, the archangel, in contending with the devil when he disputed about the body of Moses. So what's that all about? And again, it brings up more questions than it gives us answers. But it's, it clearly looked, took place. Here, again, Michael would be the warrior, the archangel, arguing with the devil over the body of Moses, dared not bring against him a reviling accusation, but simply said, the Lord rebuke you. Now, there may be times... Um, T.A. wrote an article, Can can a Person Be Demon-Possessed? And if so, why isn't it as recognizable today as it was in biblical times? And he actually has some pretty good answers for it. When I first got out of Bible school, I worked in a psychiatric hospital. And some of you are thinking, oh, that's why you are the way you are. (laughs) But I had my suspicions being born again and seeing people that were possessed that were diagnosed with symptoms psychologically, and T.A.'s answer for the person's question 
are there demon-possessed people today? And if so, why aren't, why aren't they, isn't it recognized? And he says, more than likely because of psychology. When they try to diagnose a person who has multiple personalities, and they, one pers- personality is telling them one thing, and one personality is telling them another thing, and they said, that's nothing more than demon possession. But not being born again or having the discernment, they just highly medicate them. But they got this war going on inside of them with all these different personalities. Well, that's demon possession. I also think that he was full of wisdom. And if you're not saved or born again, why mess with you? Be content with your toys. Be content with your things. Um, Job asked the question, if a man dies, will he live again? He wasn't asking that question when everything was going fine and dandy. He only asked that question when things were falling apart. And so, Ken, um, you travel, I've traveled to every country in India, and you go, you go to um, Haiti, and um, you know they talk about bad spirits all the time. It's part of everyday life. But not in American culture or society. But that doesn't mean they're not out there, and that doesn't mean there aren't people that are demon-possessed. All right, that leads to two questions. Number one, can a born-again Christian be demon-possessed? The categorical answer to that is no. Light and darkness cannot dwell together. Having said that, we can be oppressed, but we cannot be possessed. Can I say that again? You can be oppressed. You can be going through days where you're going, why in the world do I feel this way? Man, this is bad. I feel so unspiritual, I, I can't figure out what's going on. James 4, 7 said, therefore submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. But if you're listening to him and taking some of his thoughts in, well, that'll mess you up. Um, simply resisting. In Ephesians 6, if you're taking notes, it tells us of this invisible war. Clearly, the Bible teaches it. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, physical things, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against a spiritual host of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, Take the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand, stand. Stand therefore, having girded your waist with truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace and above all, taking the shield of faith which you will be able to quench the fiery darts of the wicked one. Let me just stop there and interject something. Peter is writing Mark's gospel. He's the one that's speaking more about demons than the other guys almost put together. Wasn't it um, Peter where the Lord comes up to him and says, you know, the devils just ask for you, Peter. At that point, you know, being God, I would have just snuffed them out. But he doesn't say that. He says, but don't worry about it because I've prayed that your faith won't fail. Interesting way for spiritual warfare. That's what we're told here. Above all, taking the shield of faith which will be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one. 
Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. Here's your weapon for warfare. When Jesus was tempted, you know that the Bible, the devil knows scripture? Quoted it. The devil quoted scripture. And what did the Lord do? Put it in the proper context. Not what you just said, but you're taking it out of context, and this is what it really means. And thou shalt not tempt the Lord thy God. Then it says, praying always with all power and supplication in the spirit, being watchful to this end with all perseverance and supplication for all the saints. 1 Peter 5.8 says, be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion, seeking who he may devour. Resist him. That's what it says. If you just resist him, he can't possess you but he can certainly test you just like he did Job. Question two, how does a non-Christian become possessed? To this we have to turn to Deuteronomy chapter 18. And the background for Deuteronomy 18 is they're still in the wilderness. They have not yet come into the lands of the Hittites and um, the Jebusites and the Canaanites. They're not there yet. But in chapter 18, before they get there, the Lord gives them instructions of what to look out for. So Deuteronomy 18, verse 9 says, When you do come into the land which the Lord your God is giving you, you shall not learn to follow the abomination of those nations. Okay, the word learn here. In other words, you'll learn how to do certain things to enter into this demonic realm. There shall not be found one among you who makes his son or his daughter pass through the fire. Well, boys, certainly nobody does that anymore. Uh, Kills their children and casts them into the fire. No, today we call it abortion. Judy and I are driving to church this morning. We noticed a cemetery in Little Chute had all these crosses up. I said, honey, what's with the crosses? And she said, I don't know. I just said something about 55 million. Well, since Roe v. Wade, um, there's been 55 million children that have been killed after they were alive in the womb. What did we study about John the Baptist last week? He was filled with the Holy Spirit from the womb. I said, honey, Google how many people are in America. 326 million. And we're minus 55 million that should be here today. This country is guilty of having their sons and their daughters pass through the fire. Don't learn to do after the abomination of those things. To me, abortion is one of the most selfish things a woman could do, or a man if, he, if he's involved with it. And I know that goes against everything that's politically correct said today, but I'll tell you one thing, it's the truth. It's the absolute truth. The next thing, you shall not learn to do the abominations um, one who practices, one who practices witchcraft, or a soothsayer, or one who interprets omens, or a sorcerer. These are people who are involved in occultic activity. One who conjures spells, or a medium, or a spiritist, or one who calls up the dead. Necromancy, and um, people are involved with that. 
And uh, for all who do these things are an abomination to the Lord. And because of these abominations, the Lord your God drives them out before you. God brought judgment on these nations. And this is what they were into, which was occultic activity. Um, Saul called for a witch to bring up Saul, Samuel, from the dead. Necromancy. And they were strictly um, a forbidden practice. Well, that was then. Some things have changed. Let me give you a couple of ways people unknowingly open themselves up to demon possession today. And first of all, the Bible predicts it. In 1 Timothy 4, now the Spirit expressly says that in the latter times, some will depart from the faith, giving heed to deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons. What is the doctrine of demon? Well, this is in the church today. Remember the parable of the mustard seed and birds being in it? Contemplative prayer is in the church today. The Bible warns about false teachers that promote doctrines of demons in the last days before Jesus returns. It would seem reasonable then for Christians to be aware of the possibility of being seduced and deceived. The definition of contemplative prayer is a form of Christian mysticism that allegedly brings about a mystical union with God. This is extremely popular in evangelical and charismatic circles today. No longer is it just a practice in the emergent church. It is meant to be an experience encountered with God that downplays the role of faith in scripture that exists and transcends transcends experience that lifts the individual into a higher spiritual plane. It's also known as centering prayer or breathe prayer, if you've heard of those terms. Uh, The practitioner is taught to empty the mind and enter an altered state of consciousness by repeating a mantra. Well, I grew up in in the 60s and TM was, was the big thing and it's basically the same idea. Focusing on one's breathing and contemplating images or icons. Beware of, and here's some of the buzzwords that go along with it, spiritual formation, God consciousness, or seeking a divine union and inner transformation outside the Holy Spirit and sound doctrine. Uh, The promotion of of the uh, Catholic um, uh, early church fathers, writers, on, on this practice that's taking place today. Another form is yoga. Um, most people, by the way, have you ever heard the term Christian yoga? That is what they call a real oxymoron. <laughs> people in their, again, the devil in wanting to possess you isn't gonna come up and knock on your door and say, hey, can I live here? No, he is deceptive. He's made in perfect wisdom. And so he has practices. Yoga, um, let me read a little bit from a guy from India. I'm from a Hindu with a background. The word yoga has developed from the word yog, Y-O-G. Yoga means to union. So when you do yoga, you can expect your spirit to be in union with a a divine spirit completely. According to Punan, one of the Hindu uh, scripture 
yoga is complete union between spirit of God and man. So when you do yoga, you are focused on uniting with some spirit. We know it's not the Holy Spirit and the spirit of God. Yoga was practiced in ancient Hindu times to connect them with gods to get people closer to nirvana. Hindus have many ways for salvation. Last night, I'm gonna watch my time here, pass my time. Somebody's saying, so what else is doing, Dwight? Last night, I don't know if you caught it, National Geographic. It was the whole program focused on religion. It's called the story of God. And basically, their whole goal was, can't we just acknowledge that Hindu, Jews, Islam, and Christianity, they all believe in God. So why can't we just all unite under this? And this was the premise of the whole program. I got my notebook out, and I said, I'm not getting in trouble because now I got more notes than that I already have, but that was the gist of the, of the program. And um, a lot of it had to do with primarily Hinduism and um, billions of people, over one billion in, in there. I have, to, I have to close things up, so let's go back to Mark 4 and give a quick explanation of what is the unforgivable sin. The unforgivable sin is directly tied in with demons. And as we look at it, the unforgivable sin, as we make our way through Mark, um, we find that Jesus is being accused because he just cast out a demon. And they said he did it because he's got the chief of the demons living in him, Belzebub. And the Lord basically says, that's not rational thinking. Why would Satan cast out Satan? It's it's defeating his whole purpose. That's dumb. And then he says uh, and talks about only one stronger can cast out Satan. And the Lord is stronger than Satan and that's why he was casting so many of them out. But what's interesting to me as we wind this up this morning is he warps it into forgiveness. And the only way to be saved and the why there's only one way why you can't be saved through um, any other religion. Whatever ism that's out there, if it isn't the gospel of Jesus Christ, then it's wheat and tares, and it's another gospel. Now we're saying, Jesus is saying here, there's only one way that you can be saved. Verses 28, Assuredly, I say to you, all sins will be forgiven by the sons of men, whatever blasphemy they may utter. But, He who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness but is subject to eternal condemnation because they said he had an unclean spirit. The Bible teaches that Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except through me. Well, Dwight, you, do you really believe with all these other religions that out there that, that that's possible? Once you understand that there is an invisible war going out, that the devil has gone out and sown many tears and deceptive religions that give you an alternative way, it all boils down to John 3.16 and the consequences For God loved the world so much that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. 
But then it goes on. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but the world through him might be saved. He who believes in him is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already. Already condemned? Because they have not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And this is the condemnation, that light has come into the world. But men love darkness rather than light because their deeds are evil. You want to know why some people never come to Christ? Because they don't want to give up their old lives, their old sinful habits. That's what the Bible teaches. Everyone who practices evil hates the light and does not come to the light because his deeds would be exposed. But he who does the truth comes to the light that his deeds may be clearly seen that they may have been done. Well, I believe in Jesus, but not this born-again stuff. You know I tell people about that? The demons believe in Jesus, and they call him the Son of God. And the Bible says they're all going to hell. John 3 says you must be born again. Do you know what it means in the Greek? You must be born again. And if you're not born again, you will not go to heaven. Doesn't matter what you say you believe. And with that, I better say amen, because I am past my time. Let's stand and pray. Lord, as we go through our study this morning, one thing is for certain, that you spoke a lot about the invisible war. And you've instructed us not to be ignorant of our enemy's devices. Lord, with all the other cults that are in the world today, all the other religions that Satan has has sown, we thank you that your word is clear, that the way is narrow, and you said few will be that find it. Uh, We're we're grateful for your word this morning, Lord. And um, I just pray that uh, you go before the, the rest of our day as we get together with family and friends. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.